Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books Network. This is for the History Division. My name is Charles Cotillo, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we are delighted and honored to have Professor Laura Engelstein, Professor Emerita of History at Yale University. According to the periodical Critica, Professor Engelstein is, quote, one of the most important figures in the field of Russian history, unquote. And we are here today to talk about her latest book, Russia in Flames, War, Revolution, Civil War, 1914-1921. Uh, Professor Engelstein, can you tell uh, the audience how does your treatment of this period in Russian history differ from uh, some of the more recent treatments by, say, Orlando Figgs, S.A. Smith, and Dominic Levin? 2017, as everyone knows, was the centenary, and there were a number of books that emerged that were printed, published in 2017, uh, a number of them having to do with the Soviet Union. It was interpreted as an anniversary, an occasion to think about what Soviet society and the Soviet system was like, but there were some new books on uh, the revolution itself, and of course, there are some classics. You mentioned Orlando Figes. I can't remember now, maybe it was, I don't remember the publication date, but at least 10 years ago, um, which is a a very uh, extensive narrative account. Um, in 2017, um, Stephen, Steve Smith, S.A. Smith, published, almost at the same time as I did, also with Oxford, A History of the Revolution. And we differ, let, let me focus on him, um, we differ uh, in terms of our beginning and ending dates, and also in the style of history, the way we approach the problem. So I go from 1914 to 1921, which is to say the beginning of the First World War until the end of the Civil War. Steve Smith goes, I think he, he, he well, I also have a prelude before 1914, which he does too. He starts extensively in the 1890s and goes all the way into 1928. So he draws a very large arc, mostly social and economic history, although he also, of course, doesn't neglect the political events. And I um, do something somewhat different. I don't go all the way through the 1920s because there was an important shift in Soviet policy in 1921. I do the arc of war, revolution, and civil war, as the subtitle says, and I um, focus on the political events, on the question of power, but also on the question of empire. So I think my book is distinctive in that it really takes seriously all the component revolutions that constituted this upheaval. So the empire the Tsarist Empire before 1917 was an enormous landmass which had acquired peripheral territories over the course of a couple of centuries, some of which were more integrated or less integrated into the uh, core. 
And when the authority of the old regime crumbled, these regional areas started to assert their desire for autonomy to some extent or self-government, in some cases, separation. And so once the regime has fallen, you have not only the story of the struggle between Bolsheviks and anti-Bolsheviks, just to be simple, to simplify for the moment, but also the struggle of the component parts of empire to either escape the empire or assert themselves in various ways. And this created a massively complicated narrative, but also one that really has to be taken account, into account these days. Going back to the pre-Great War um, situation in uh, Imperial Russia, um, would, I take it from your narrative that you don't really agree with um, historians like, say, Boris Miranov or Wayne Dowler, who tend to state that, uh, or tend to view this, the pre-Great pre War, pre-1914 Russian Empire as being a much more stable entity than, say, some of the more pessimistic um, views of some historians. I suppose the best-known example, though it's rather old now, is Leopold Hamsen's 1965 essay on um, uh, pre-Great pre War um revolutionary tendencies or pre-revolutionary situation in pure Russia. Right. You're quite right to, to remind us of Leopold Hamsen's um, important articles. I think he calls it social polarization. He's talking about internal tensions in society, which he felt were really pushing in the direction of destabilization or revolution. Um, I would say that the, the one has to take into our modern view, so to speak, of the old regime at the, in its last decades is it was a regime of great contradiction and hence great inner tension. So on the one hand, you had a very stubbornly autocratic regime. It was still uh, a monarchy with a not very gifted monarch who insisted on, on retaining the monopoly on power, on executive power, um, even though he was forced after 1905 to permit the, the formation of a national parliament. So you have a very rigid political regime, which did not provide for the kind of institutions of social self-organization, what we call civil society. On the other hand, this was a regime which was also committed to modernization. So although even in 1914, 85% of the population was still rural, cities were growing, a working class was growing, a middle class was growing. The components we normally think of as civil society, the press, uh, voluntary associations, all this was developing very rapidly toward the end. So you have a combination of intense modernization and a reluctance to share power, to open the door to the kind of civic uh, and political developments associated with modernization in Europe, let's say. So my view is that the regime itself contributed to the problem of its own survival. And this is exacerbated during World War I when the policies uh, implemented by the military high command were highly destructive of the social fabric, of the coherence of empire, the persecution of domestic population in the Western provinces, highly xenophobic and anti-Semitic official propaganda, which really emphasized the divisions in society and the conflicts in society and encouraged a kind of violence um, that later was proved fatal to the regime. 
So there are a lot of factors uh, contributing to the inability of uh, the czarist regime to conduct the war properly. Um, but I think that I like to say that the regime contributed to its own demise, both politically and then with its uh, the impact of its kind of uh, monopoly on politics on society. Um, and dissatisfaction with this kind of a regime dated back to the first half of the 19th century, really. So I wouldn't say that, I would say that absent the war, maybe this regime could have developed in a more progressive manner. And one of the things that I wanted, to, that I discovered, or not discovered because I knew it, but it came, seemed to me much more prominent as I went deeper and deeper into the story, was the extent to which the wide population, not just the cultural elites, but the broad population, the provincial elites, the middle, the urban classes, and even to some extent the lower classes, had a very vivid desire for self-government, for involvement in public affairs. Uh, so that the revolution of 1917 is um, because of the outcome with Bolshevik victory at the end of the Civil War. We focus on that, on radicalism, on authoritarian outcomes. But actually the revolution, the, the initial impulse of 1917 was a democratic revolution. And this was also evident in 1905, the first revolution, when all of society really mobilized. And what did they mobilize on behalf of? a parliament, elections, self-representation. This is what was a very, very broadly shared impulse at the beginning of 1917. So we have to pause and start a new paragraph and ask the question of why it didn't prevail. But I think this is important to um, recognize because this also was a potential inside uh, pre-1917 Russian society. Uh, sticking with the uh pre-Great War Russia, your view or treatment of uh, the uh, premier from 1906 to 1911, Pyotr Stilipin, is somewhat harsher than uh, most historians uh, paint him as. Why is that? <laughs> uh, can you be more specific? Well, in, in general, your, um, I think... Historians like Pipes or Levin or even Jeffrey Hoskins would tend to say that his premiership uh, was um, had two phases. First phase up to around 1910 um, was productive, and the second phase thereafter, um, either from dating from the I think what's called in the literature the general naval general staff crisis, or conversely, the Western Zemstvo crisis, um, that thereafter, this the last year, year and a half of his premiership was much less productive, and that uh, there's usually a quote from someone from uh, the Duma that uh, by a couple of months prior to his assassination, in I think I believe in October November 1911 that his premiership um, he as a politician had been played out and um, but in your case you seem to give very little credit to either phase one much less phase two in terms of positive achievements by Stilipin. Okay, well I don't remember in my narrative um, how large a role, how much attention I pay to Stilipin, actually. 
Um, I think his overall his uh, tenure is is characterized also by contradictions. So even in the early phase, of course, he was was involved in the repression of the aftermath of 1905. The, he was never the famous in, sleep in neckties, so called. Yeah, he was never he was never characterized by uh, kind of a liberal. Uh, he certainly was not a liberal in, in the cadet sense of the term. That's well, you couldn't true. really have a liberal. I mean, you have you have a couple of very intelligent ministers at the end of the old regime. Sergei Vita, uh, the minister of finance, obviously Stalipin, also obviously. Um, but throughout his throughout his tenure, he on the one hand he was characterized. He did recognize that you had to work with the Duma to some extent. He didn't ignore society, so he was a pragmatist. Both Vita and Stalipin were devoted to the survival and the strengthening of the autocracy, but they recognized that you had to do this in some, to some extent in creative ways. Um, now, there's a very uh, wonderful essay just recently came out in a volume of essays, of counterfactual essays, um, uh, edited by, by Tony Breton. And the, the, the problem of the essay is what would have been different had Stalipin not been assassinated. And the conclusion of the essay is, um, I'm really sorry, not much, <laughs> that the structural problems of the old regime were not affected one way or the other by his disappearance, and that he had been frustrated in his in his creative uh, endeavors by the structure of the regime. And of course, he's also associated with repression. So I think Stalipin, in that sense, is an emblem of these tensions and contradictions um, inherent in, in the last years of the monarchy. Simon Dixon is the author of this really very wonderful essay, which I recommend to readers. Going to the, the Great War period, but prior to February 1917, in the narrative, you um, make reference, because it's contemporary reference from the time period of the so-called dark forces uh, that were supposed to be surrounding uh, Nicholas, Tsar Nicholas II. Um, can you explain to the audience what that was referring to specifically? And um, would you agree with, I suppose, insofar as most scholars um, focus on it, that this was mythological, um, mythological force, that there was, no, in fact, no dark forces surrounding the throne, et cetera, et cetera. Well, okay, so, so this, uh, this phrase, the dark forces, uh, referred in particular to the influence of um, Rasputin, and he has become this oversized symbol of everything that was wrong with the old regime. Uh, he was a, a, in a sense, I like to think of him as a, um, an amateur spiritual guru, um, he was he was not properly a monk. He had a very charismatic personality and insinuated himself into the court. And he was particularly close to the Empress Alexandra. He apparently had healing powers or seemed to have, which helped control the hemophilia of the Tsarevich, her ailing the ailing heir to the throne um, and he became the focus of the projection of dismay distress um, and disapproval of high society um, and the problem with Nicholas II is that in the course of the First World War he lost his charisma and there's a wonderful recent book by my Russian colleague Boris Kolonitsky on the loss of love for the Tsar 
during the war. So in order to be a symbolic centerpiece of the regime, he had to really exercise a certain kind of uh, a, a grip on the imagination, the loyalty, the hearts of the population, at all levels of the population. And because the war was not going well and he was associated with its misconduct, especially after he made himself commander-in-chief in August 1915, um, the dissatisfaction focused on him. But it was much easier to focus the dissatisfaction on the man next to him than on the monarch himself. So um, Rasputin became the object of this this horror, this uh, distress. And since he kind of operated in a sort of spiritual mode, it was easy to use this language and talk about dark forces. It's a metaphorical expression. But on the other hand, insofar as the country seemed out of control and the center wasn't holding, I think people began to think in somewhat um, mystical or spiritual terms, which wouldn't have been out of... Uh, out of um, uh, out of sync with the spirit of the age in any case. And as everyone, I think, probably knows, Rasputin was assassinated. He was murdered by three men, very highly placed in society, very conservative, whose purpose was to save the monarchy, not sink it. And, of course, it's a very melodramatic story about first they try to poison him and then they shoot him and so on. Um, and this story of Rasputin has captured the imagination of Western uh, readers. And when we associate, when we talk about 1917, Rasputin is sometimes the first name that comes to mind. And yes, I think um, it's a symptomatic story, but it is not a moment that you can say Rasputin caused or helped contribute to the decline of the monarchy or the fall of the monarchy in any more specific way than merely to represent uh, what was wrong with it. And he did exercise a certain amount of influence on Alexandra and on decision-making on the part of the emperor. But it is a very sort of strange gesture on the part of people who murdered him to think that they could really change the course of, of history by getting rid of this one figure. Sticking uh with uh, Tsar Nicholas II, what do you make of him as a historical figure? Well, the problem with the monarchy is uh, you sort of get the next person in line. And Nicholas was not a talented ruler. He didn't have the personality. He wasn't decisive. He wasn't bold. Um, he was rigid. And it was a very difficult period for this regime to navigate, and he really was not up to the job. He was also following on a very conservative uh, monarch before him, and he he adapted or adopted, perpetuated this attitude toward toward uh, rule. You're going to get me back into the history of the 19th century, and one of the problems is uh, when you think about the revolution of 1917, how far back do you go to look at its roots? So you can go back to Alexander II, uh, who was an enlightened monarch, who decided um, that Russia had to move forward in the process of modernization and instigated the process of the liberation of the serfs, in which he engaged the upper crust of society and so on. And he was thought of as a progressive figure. And as everyone who knows anything about Russian history probably knows, in 1881, he was assassinated by, by some extreme revolutionaries. So in no good deed goes unpunished. Um, he's followed by Alexander III, who has dedicated himself to reaction and repression. 
But then it's the sort of chicken and egg situation is why is it that Russian society produced the kind of revolutionaries who were so extreme in their in their uh, methods and in their aspirations, which is a long, complicated story. Could Russia have recovered from the reign of Alexander III? Um, that's not so open and shut a question, because even though Alexander III was politically conservative, the whole process of change, of social change, of uh, industrialization and building of railroads and so on, proceeded. Because Russia was a great power and couldn't really sit there and be an antiquated, um, have an antiquated economy or social structure um, and maintain its position on the world stage. Um, so, uh, as I said in the beginning of this interview, I think these kind of internal contradictions in this autocratic regime with a massive imperial um, landmass having to move forward wanting to retain an antiquated social structure, antiquated uh, system of authority, um, was bound to run into trouble of some kind or another. And then you come to the moment of World War One, in which Nicholas's weaknesses as a monarch really show up, um, his inability to exercise command, his inability to to bend, to be flexible, to engage, to draw in society. And one of the sort of puzzles uh, of the last decades of the old regime. As a historian, you look at the situation and you say, why did these monarchs always think of society as the enemy? Why didn't they understand that a much cleverer way of undermining the extremes would be to engage the middle, to draw it in, to allow it to really have a certain amount of autonomy that would have strengthened, in fact, even the monarchy itself. It might have had to change to some extent. So this policy of repression, of exclusion, and even once you have the state Duma, limitation on its powers, constant irritation, constant um, narrowing of its potential, all this really helped destroy the system itself. So you think, where was the smart, where was the smart czar? who could have seen uh, that a different policy or followed the impulses of some of his, of the smarter ministers in that direction. So the war also had another paradoxical result, which is because the regime was doing poorly at managing the war, it was finally obliged to allow society to step in more than ever before. So the First World War shows a very, again, a sort of, two-sided development. On the one hand, xenophobia, chauvinistic patriotism, and so on, um, social conflicts. But on the other hand, voluntary organizations, charitable organizations, the moving forward um, outside of the Duma, society rising to the occasion. And the regime needed that. Industrialists uh, moved in, all in support of the war. But this meant that society had sort of understood to a certain extent its powers during the war. And in February 1917, it's precisely that society which was mobilized on behalf of the war that starts the revolution. And they say, the czar is finished, he no longer can operate, he no longer has the authority, and we're going to create a new authority also in order to, uh, to pursue the war to victory. So the first impulse of the revolution is on behalf of national honor, on behalf of the war, but um, 
from the platform of society rather than the autocracy. So you endorse the Hasegawa thesis that the February Revolution of 1917 saw saw the joining of hands between, on the one hand, the generals at Stavka, the Duma politicians in Petersburg, and the popular masses in Petersburg to force the czar from power. Uh I wouldn't say yes. Uh, I, I, I agree with Toshi Hasegawa that all these elements are involved. I would say that there's a somewhat of a there is a collaboration between the political elite and the military elite, and there's a parallel development between this uh, uh, impulse at the top of society and the rebellious impulse of, uh, among the soldiers and um, the, the urban populace. Uh, and then they converge in in February, and it's the popular movement that gives this uh, dissatisfied elite the leverage to push against the czar and get him to a- abdicate, because the masses, uh, so-called masses, the rebellious soldiers who flood Petrograd in February 1917, and the workers who protest on food shortages and so on, they are also experiencing the impact of the war, but in a different fashion. So it's economic hardship, um, the fatigue of of fighting, and so on, that propels the popular movement in in nineteen in February 1917. So my view uh, of 1917, in distinction, in contrast to some more conservative views of the revolution, is that there was indeed a popular revolution or different popular movements throughout the year of 1917 and into the Civil War. A more recent focus is on not so much popular movements, but on collapse, anarchy, chaos, catastrophe, violence. So because the official Soviet version of 1917 was um, tended to exaggerate the discipline and political awareness of at least the proletariat, there is a a sort of movement in the opposite direction among historians in post-Soviet Russia, as well as here, um, to focus on on simply on the element of violence and crime and disorder, and to the extent of really underestimating, I think, the existence of organized, purposeful, collective action um, at the lower reaches of the social hierarchy in the cities and also in among the peasantry to some extent. So Toshi Hasegawa, just to re, re, uh, uh, repeat a familiar name, has just recently come out, again on the occasion of the centenary, with a book on crime in Petrograd in, in just in the year of 1917, in which he really emphasizes you know, mob violence and um, drunkenness, uh, crime, uh, and... In the Pushkin sense. Yes, exactly, in the Pushkin sense. So Pushkin's famous quote is a Russian riot, uh, uh, pitiless and purposeful and purposeless, <laughs> uh, uh, senseless, pitiless and senseless. And I think pitiless for sure, but senseless, no. Uh, I think there's a lot of purpose and a lot of um, concerted action in, in many of these situations. And more important, it's sometimes very hard to distinguish uh, mere... Um, rampage and pillage from political activity. Sometimes they're intermingled. Sometimes there's a political purpose to violence. 
And of course, sometimes it's just violence, and there was a lot of drunkenness and breaking into wine stores and so on. Um, but I think there was also real desire for real goals, real grievances, and habits of collective action dated back to 1905 that were also encouraged by outside organizers in at the front, in the barracks, in the factories um, during the war. So my view is that you have to, yes, take into account the real, the real frightening aspects of the revolution uh, and not airbrush and not romanticize. Um, definitely I'm not on the romantic end, but also to give credit to the capacity for political action at various levels of society. So you would still give the uh, popular masses agency uh, as opposed to some more recent historians? Well, what I notice when I one of the exciting elements of writing this book in 2000, well, I didn't write it in 2017, but in the years preceding 2017, is that I was able to take advantage of the massive amount of publications that have come out in post-Soviet Russia, involving the publication of primary documents from the archives, involving rethinking of uh, various issues, key issues involved in the revolution, and particularly in the Civil War. So there's a lot of very fine-grained documentation uh, that illuminates the infrastructure and the dynamics of some of these popular movements. At the moment, I'm thinking of peasant movements uh, during the Civil War. They were certainly violent, but they also they had leaders, they had slogans, they adopted some slogans provided by the socialists, they invented other slogans. Sometimes they were anti-Semitic, expressed their anger in terms of um, the Jews as a symbolic target. But there's over and over examples of in the in the midst of chaos and breakdown and real economic suffering, physical suffering, the fear of death, famine, and so on. A lot of these uh, examples of movements are 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 coherent. They have an inner logic, and I think it's uh, it, it's just oversimplification in the other direction to think of all of this as just breakdown and, and chaos. Uh, and so in that sense, when I say my book is political, it's also political in the sense of looking for politics on the social level, in terms of social analysis of political movements. I haven't entirely given up on, on that um, approach to history. Uh, for the year 1917, you used quite a bit the observation, contemporary observations of N.N. Uh, N. Sukhanov. Can you speak about him and tell the audience why his observations are so widely used and so important? Well, Nikolai uh, Sukhanov was a Menshevik, um, and the Mensheviks were the less radical social democratic brothers of the Bolsheviks. Um, but he was on the left of the Mensheviks, so he was very sympathetic to the Bolsheviks, but also very critical of their extreme tactics and the authoritarian tendencies within the Bolshevik party. And what I mean by that is the tendency of Lenin to exercise ultimate authority, a certain um, intolerance for difference of opinion, uh, a, a, a history since the beginning of the party in, in the 1903, when they split between Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, of um, insistence on a certain adherence to uh, 
party principles and so on. The Mensheviks were distinguished by uh, a greater attention to mass movement, to building a trade union movement, to act, to um, activism among the working classes. The Bolsheviks did that too, but they had a different style, a different a political tone. Um, and so there was this this back and forth between these two tendencies within Russian social democracy. So um, this is a long excursus to explain that um, Nikolai Sukhanov was of the Menshevik persuasion, close to the Bolsheviks, and involved in all the events. And he was simply a very gifted um, a diarist, a memoirist. And so his, his memoirs uh, are um, widely used because they are very eloquent and very detailed and very much of an insider story without being an ins- a sympathetic outsider to the Bolshevik story and a, a sympathetic, uh, obviously a participant observer to everything that's going on. So yes, one relies perhaps too much on Nikolai Sukhanov, uh, but he provides a very uh, smart and knowledgeable uh, in, in participant observer account of many of the events of 1917. There's one issue where I noticed that I'm guessing just by the non-treatment of it in the narrative, uh, I believe that you do not take much cognizance in terms of historical importance of uh, the, for lack of a better expression, I think it's used in the literature, German gold variable in terms of uh, moving forward events in 1917. Why is that? Right. So the issue there is um, to what extent were the Bolsheviks puppets of Germany? because Germany, of course, was the enemy. Russia was still fighting Germany in the First World War. So everyone knows that Lenin and his colleagues returned to Russia in a so-called sealed train, which uh, the German government facilitated, uh, enabling them to arrive in, in Petrograd in the middle of 1917 and exert their influence. Um, and then there is some evidence that the Bolshevik Party received uh, financial support from um, German sources. And the implication is that the Bolsheviks were, were, were puppets, of, did the bidding of the Germans, served their interests. So, first of all, I think this is simply wrong um, in the sense that to, up to a certain point, uh, Encouraging revolution uh, in the Russian Empire was indeed in the German interest, and they did everything to facilitate, to encourage um, revolution from inside. They particularly did everything they could in terms of propaganda and support to encourage the breakup of the empire, nationalist aspirations among the minority uh, territories of the empire. Um, they thought of the Bolsheviks as uh, a way or a revolution as a way of undermining the power of the state. So you can say that their influence coincided with Bolshevik interests, their interests coincided with Bolshevik interests up to a certain point. And even after the Bolsheviks um, come to power or seize power in October uh, 1917, um, the Bolsheviks then immediately begin to engage in negotiations for a separate peace, which results in the peace of Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in March 1918, and you can say yes again that the Bolsheviks are pursuing a course that coincides with German interests. And the Bolsheviks were interested in anybody who would support them, uh, 
Germans or otherwise. Uh, Lenin had a lot of trouble getting his own party, let alone anybody else, to support um, the idea of a separate peace. It's sometimes forgotten that the Bolsheviks themselves resisted this step, even though the promise of peace was a very strong component of the Bolshevik appeal on the popular level in October 1917. Uh, but in, ultimately, the Bolsheviks were the opposite of what German foreign policy would have wanted. It turned out that the Bolsheviks were the most capable of reestablishing the power of the Russian state. So if you look a little further down the line, you see that uh, this geopolitically speaking is not ex exactly not what the German uh, German diplomats would have wanted to be the outcome of the revolution. So in that sense, and in any other sense, Lenin was certainly not consciously or um, thinking of himself as pursuing German interests or as being a tool of German interests. Lenin was firmly focused on uh, engineering a socialist revolution. He thought of the Russian Revolution as a component of world revolution. In that sense, he was very eager for Germany to have its own revolution. So I don't see, uh, I think this is a kind of right-wing uh, argument aimed at discrediting the Bolsheviks in yet another way. I think there are other objections, many objections one could raise to Bolshevism as a political movement uh, to the outcome of what turned out to be Soviet Russia, but I don't think the argument that the Bolsheviks were tools of German foreign policy contributes anything to understanding their motivations or the outcome um, or the dynamics of the revolution. So you don't really buy the the recent argument of Sean McMeekin that um, uh, in this vein about um, uh, Bolsheviks not so much being uh, agents, but um, uh, if not puppets, then at the very least handmaidens of uh, German policy in 1917. No, I think that's not a productive way of thinking about it. It's just rhetoric. Um, it's one thing to say that the Bolsheviks made use of German money insofar as they had it. They made use of German complicity insofar as they had it to pursue their own aims. Um, after, the revel after October 1917, they negotiated with the English, with the French. Uh, that didn't work out. They were instrumentalists. They were opportunists. They wanted to establish uh, not only to seize power, which is an odd expression because what was this power they were seizing? They really had to establish a new power. They had to establish their authority. They had to build the state all over again. And they didn't care whose money they were going to use to do this, but they had their own goals. I think the kind of rhetoric that – I haven't read McMeekin's book because I don't find that style of thinking about history useful. Um, it reflects more about McMeekin's own politics than about uh, what was going on at the time. Um, so – I don't even pursue it, and the reason I'm avoiding your question is I had did, never went into the details of this claim because I don't think it's it's useful to understanding what happened. Understood. Uh, let me, let, uh, going into 1917, uh, the, in the narrative of the question raised itself to the reader almost immediately. Uh, why did not the provisional government do what Lenin ended up doing in uh, March of 1918, which was signing a separate peace with the Germans and their allies? Right. 
So here's the problem of why those wonderful Democrats of the beginning of, uh, or liberals of the beginning of the revolution, don't succeed. Why don't they stay in the saddle? Uh, and some of the reasons are, are kind of heartbreaking. Um, one of the reasons is they kept sticking to principle of, of legality, of legitimacy, and they postponed the elections to the constituent assembly. They refused to behave the way the Bolsheviks had no problem behaving, which is saying, hey, we're in power, we're going to exercise power, we're it, um, which is exactly the methods that the Bolsheviks used. They weren't entirely successful because, of course, there was enormous resistance, and that led to the entire civil war, which lasted for three years. But think how hard it was for Lenin to get even the Bolsheviks to agree to a separate peace to pull out. It was very difficult. And this is, I find, really interesting because, pragmatically, it was very important to do that, and that was Lenin's whole point. Do it, do it, do it. But there was great resistance. It was partly resistance because you could say it was a form of patriotism, um, not to give in to the enemy. The liberals, the cadets, the, the more moderates who were constituted the provisional government believed they owed loyalty to the allies, to France and England. They couldn't just renege on their uh, alliances. Uh, they were um, dedicated to the prosecution of the war. So this combination of um, of timidity about asserting their right to power, this uh, loyalty to um, the commitments of the war really inhibited them. Also, despite the fact that the soldiers were mutinying and unhappy with the war, the army continued to fight. It didn't just suddenly completely disintegrate it to the extent that the front was not operative. So um, I Although I'd like to emphasize in my story the, the vitality of the democratic impulse in 1917, I hope I don't exaggerate the chances of its actually prevailing in the end. It was a very difficult situation. And even after uh, the Bolsheviks do sign this separate treaty, of course, um, their chestnuts weren't out of the fire, and they had to turn right around and start fighting another kind of war uh, immediately thereafter. And this is really a fascinating, one of the most fascinating aspects of the whole story, if you take it not just 1917, but all the way into 1921, is here this a minority party which used the cover of the slogan, All Power to the Soviets. This slogan, All Power to the Soviets, symbolized the very wide appeal of a broad socialist vocabulary, a broad socialist vision, which encompassed Mensheviks, the Nikolai Sukhanovs, the socialist revolutionaries who were agrarian socialists. It was a matter of slogans and songs and aspirations and a desire for uh, social equality and so on. The whole kind of menu of socialist aspiration and desire, they shared this. But the Bolsheviks used this platform to establish their own um, exclusive claim to power. And this was the project of the Bolsheviks, which was to preempt to co-opt, to use uh, this popular uh, impulse in the interest of building a state and creating a socialist society. And they had to fight tooth and nail to defend this project in the Civil War. And the amazing feat of organization and institution building um, is reflected in the creation of the Red Army uh, out of the disintegrating pieces of the old Imperial Army and uh, despite the difficulties of provisioning 
and conscription, which had faced both preceding regimes, the old regime and the provisional government. And the Bolsheviks, in the face of enormous opposition, managed to pull this off. And to me, this is the really gripping, dramatic story of the Civil War, which is really still part of the revolution. The question of power is not resolved in October 1917. In my opinion, the question of power really begins in October 1917. And it's not just the formation, the rallying of the right-wing anti-Bolsheviks in the form of the white movement and the generals who go over to to the anti-Bolshevik offensive, but also the emergence of other kinds of anti-Bolshevik mobilizations on a popular level in terms of national self-assertion in the course of the civil war. So you have the Ukraine being both a popular revolution and a nationalist revolution. You have the breakaway states in the Baltic with German support. You have the Polish war in which Poland then makes a stab at reestablishing its own national authority and national boundaries. You have a whole series of conflicts, both horizontal and vertical in Central Asia in the Caucasus. And through all of this, somehow, holding on to the central, move, having moved to Moscow as the capital, these Bolsheviks, who were basically amateurs at politics, managed to put together the core institutions of a new state. And this is a really dramatic story, a much more interesting story of did they take German money in the course of 1917 and how much or what, because this is them on their own. Um, of course, the Germans are defeated in November 1917. Uh, 18. Up to then, they, op- uh, they occupy quite a large segment of the Western uh, territory of the former Soviet Empire, including Ukraine. Um, the, the game changes when they get out of the picture at the end of, of uh, 1918. Uh, but this is really uh, an enormous mobilization all across the, uh, the country. And the victory of the Bolsheviks is not entirely um, predictable. So to me, this is the drama, and this is the really important story, which combines both politics and uh, social movements um, of various kinds. And that was my aspiration in writing this book, to try to put the big picture together without unnecessarily simplification, uh, unnecessary simplification, but also um, trying to, to point out patterns and some kind of coherent picture over uh, that unites all the various components of the story. Uh, indeed. You state in the book that uh, for Lenin and Trotsky, quote, the Civil War was not something to be feared, but something to be wished for. Well, first of all, the way they looked at the world, their Marxist lens, they saw society as basically a form of, well, class warfare, which is to say that the Issues of power and domination were built into the structure of capitalist society. So for them, war, class warfare is not a metaphor. It's an actual struggle for power. Um, and they understood that they would have to fight the class enemy in order to establish this new kind of society. So they knew they were at war. Um, and the actual war of the Civil War was provided the platform both for institution building, for clarifying us versus them, for rallying a core of loyal supporters, uh, for getting rid of the competition on the left as well as the enemies on the right. So I think that the Civil War, uh, the Mensheviks were more reluctant to encourage the kind of brutal uh, social conflicts 
that the Bolsheviks were were not at all hesitant to take advantage of. Uh, so it's usually said, or often said, um, by critics of the Bolsheviks, that the country falls apart, the Bolsheviks take advantage of the chaos and establish an authoritarian regime. Um, I think that's, uh, to go back to an earlier part of our discussion, um, that's oversimplifying. The Bolsheviks do contribute to this disintegration of the old authority. They mobilize popular forces to uh, discredit, attack, undermine the old forms of authority, but then they mobilize them to support a new form of authority. And this is where the Red Army and the new socialist institutions come in. It's also where the secret police, the Chica, the political police, not secret police, uh, comes in. The Bolsheviks are fighting a class war to build a new kind of society. So the Chica, the extraordinary commission, which becomes later the, the eventually the KGB, um, is created in December 1917, so not long after the October coup, and it is a key institution. It is the instrument, the headquarters, so to speak, of fighting the domestic war, and Trotsky and the Red Army are the institution that fights the the actual war of the civil war, and together they combine to identify not just the external political enemy, but the internal class enemy. So this is a, a sort of a composite struggle both for military supremacy, political supremacy, and social reconstruction. And that's what makes it such a dynamic and such a, uh, a frightening and extraordinary uh, upheaval. Indeed. Is that, that, I presume that's the reason why you describe the Red Terror as, quote, as much preemptive strike as reaction, unquote. Yes, in the sense that I don't, some historians have argued that the Bolsheviks would have been more democratic, they would have been more tolerant, uh, had there not been a civil war. So they are, this is, they are seen by such historians as a basically social democratic party whose project gets distorted by attacks from the outside, the, the re reactionary generals, basically the components of the old society who want to restore the old, uh, system. But, of course, the enemies of the Bolsheviks were not only disgruntled monarchists, but also liberals, also Mensheviks, also SRs. So a large component of the socialist left were also um, anti-Bolshevik. Um, what was that quote you just read to me? <laughs> uh, Red Terror as, quote, as much preemptive strike as reaction. Right. So my argument is that they don't wait for the civil war to create the Chica. They create this uh, political police right at the beginning. And the argument for that is very interesting. Uh, Dzerzhinsky, who was Felix Dzerzhinsky, who was the first director uh, of the Chica, says explicitly, he says, we build the Chica in order to um, mobilize, incorporate the kind of extreme violence that's out there in society, this class enmity, this resentment, um, to mobilize this on our behalf. We can't really stop it, but we want to institutionalize it. We want to give it our imprimatur, our ideological stamp. So they are interested in wiping out the class en enemy, in targeting certain segments of the population, in endorsing other segments of the population, and in uh, providing a mechanism for this kind of internal warfare, this kind of uh, struggle. So I see that as part of their ideological agenda and also part of their strategies for creating a new kind of authority because they really have to work hard at establishing a regime that actually 
works. And that is can't be taken for granted. After all, look at the fact that the provisional government did not succeed in doing that. Um, and along comes this their competitors, the Bolsheviks, and with great difficulty uh, and over a period of years, they managed to do it. And the Chikah, the political police, is one important component of that. On the same theme, uh, circa 1919-1920, you say that the Bolsheviks viewed the peasantry in the countryside as, quote, enemy territory in need of conquest, unquote. Could, could you expand on that? Okay, so the Bolshevik attitude toward the peasantry is is not simple. Um, in Marx's theory, of course, this is going to be the proletarian revolution, and the peasantry are a problem. They're considered so-called petty bourgeois in the sense that they aspire to have property. Uh, they uh, ha- they are socially conservative. They are not part of. They are in a hostile relationship to the cities. Um, however, in fact, in the in Russian society at the end of the old uh, empire, the lines were not that distinctly drawn. Uh, Peasants were going back and forth to the city. Insofar as the proletariat was growing, it was growing, it was being fed by the peasantry. Uh, The peasants were more connected to the rest of society uh, than a simple scheme would suggest. And the war really did uh, an enormous amount to, to increase this connection because these young peasant men who went out to went to the army, went to the front, came back to their villages, went back again. They um, are more connected to what the larger political picture, to the general situation. So the peasantry is, is more part of the overall picture at this point. Also, the Bolsheviks, uh, the, the party that most appealed to the peasantry were the socialist revolutionaries, and the left wing of the socialist revolutionaries collaborated with the Bolsheviks in October. They became their allies. And the Bolsheviks take over the socialist revolutionaries, um, not their program, but their slogans, land, peace, bread. So land is not exactly a socialist slogan because it means you get to have land. They didn't say, we're going to take the land away from you and socialize it. Um, So the peasants are also um, the object of grain requisitioning. This was a problem for, as I said before, the two preceding regimes. The peasants provide the manpower for the army. They also provide the grain to feed the army, the grain to feed the cities. And this is a problem which none of these aspirants to power and authority were able to solve. So the peasants become an antagonistic force, a force that has to be mastered in order to get the resources out of them. And the methods that are used are are pretty extreme, and the peasants become very resistant. And um, if they had been revolutionary against the old regime, um, manorial class, which they were, um, they became revolutionary against the Bolsheviks, who then tried to establish their authority and to take grain away from them and to make demands upon them. So that's the one reason that the peasants become a problem for the Bolsheviks, and also the peasants. Um, there is a large peasant mobilization against Bolshevik authority in the core provinces um, in Ukraine. Uh, so the Bolsheviks see the peasants as a an aggressive force. And in that sense, finally, when you look at the outcome of the grain requisitioning, the pressure on the peasantry, the repression of peasant uh, uprisings, which were very brutal, uncompromising. And in that sense, I say the peasantry becomes uh, an enemy that needs to be conquered or mastered. 
And by the time you get to the end of the Civil War, it's, the peasantry, you could say, were probably not surprising that they became enemies of the Bolshevik power because their interests were so divergent. But the proletariat and the sailors of Kronstadt and the soldiers who mutiny, these were the supporters of the Bolsheviks in October. By the time you get to the beginning of 1921, you have, or even well before 1918, you have an enormous amount of organized, a considerable amount, substantial amount of organized worker resistance to Bolshevik authority when the workers realize they're not going to have the kind of autonomy and self-control that they had associated with the Bolshevik promise of October. So there's a disillusionment already right away in 1918. There's a lot more detailed material available on that now than there used to be. Um, and then, of course, the great Kronstadt rebellion of February 1921, in which the sailors of Kronstadt, who had been ardent supporters of the Bolsheviks, rejected the Bolsheviks in the name of the same principles that the Bolsheviks had represented. So popular democracy, um, the Soviet power without communists, uh, the idea of this kind of grassroots democracy. Um, and so that's the sense in which I like to say that this ideal of the original revolution survives the turmoil. Of course, the Bolsheviks were ruthless in repressing uh, the Kronstadt uprising, um, which they depicted as counter-revolutionary and so on. And it was actually, you could say, the original revolutionary impulse which survives. So that's why I end my uh, story in the beginning of 1921. The peasants are really um, um, conquered, if you want to put it that way, by the famine, which devastates the countryside. Um, Kronstadt is repressed by military force. But 1921 is the moment in which the Bolsheviks decide they have to make a very important concession. And it has been argued that, you know, NEP, the new economic policy, the reversion to a certain elements of the, of the market place, um, the pulling back from the intense um, pressure on the countryside um, is a concession, is a response to rebellion in the countryside, to the resistance of the popular classes that had enabled them to come to power to begin with. Uh, going back to the Kronstadt rebellion of uh, early 1921, I I believe um, that you don't agree with Smith's um, view that if there is not necessarily a white guard plot, there was certainly white guard plotting in connection with that uprising. Well, there was a general who was inside Kronstadt who was blamed uh, by the Bolsheviks for having instigated the uprising. But according to the material I read, which has the archival material, which was um, published, edited, annotated after 1991 by Soviet by Russian, post-Soviet Russian scholars, um, that emphatically uh, rejects the idea that this was a, a conspiracy or an event that was orchestrated by some kind of outside white guard um, element. They see it, the picture that emerges from this documentation and from this analysis, in my mind, uh, points to um, a genuine popular anger uh, a genuine popular movement with its own internally generated leadership and so on. Um, so I don't, I, I, I don't recall Steve Smith saying that. You, you must be right, but um, 
if he did, then I guess I do disagree with him. Uh, it's actually on page 258 of his book. That could be. <laughs> I don't. I don't doubt it. I just don't have an immediate recall. <laughs> In your conclusion, you state that quote: "The Bolsheviks were triumphant because they focused on power." Can you expand on that? Well, I think that uh, yeah, that they. This is what I've been trying to say to a certain extent uh, up till now is that they were. They really were institution builders. They were interested in establishing their, in this case, uh, monopoly on power. And they did that by, by creating institutions, by education, by propaganda, by spreading their word, by making their own, by associating them, trying to associate themselves exclusively with the socialist message, trying to establish their unique hold on it. So at some point, um, uh, when Trotsky is organizing the Red Army and trying to reimpose discipline, he said, okay, we need to have old-fashioned discipline, we need to have hierarchy, we need to have penalties, but also we need more activists coming out to give speeches, we need more propaganda, we need more um, education in that sense, agitation. So this was a, you know, a radical project to uh, establish a new state. So they really were state builders. And in this sense, this is what I mean by power. When Lenin argues against some of his closest associates in October 1917, that they have to seize power on the eve of the Soviet Congress to show them who's really in charge, who really assumes and takes responsibility for being in power. And Lenin was really focused. I, I keep talking about Lenin. Lenin uh, leading the way in this regard, but supported by his closest um, uh, comrades and Trotsky in particular, on the necessity of seizing the center of creating organizations of insisting on one's own authority. And it's sort of mysterious. How do you get people to recognize you as an authority? These are real outsiders when they first make their first move. So, this is a very interesting process to me, and this is what I tried to anatomize, to analyze, to try to understand uh, as it unfolds in the course of the Revolution and Civil War. If there was one thing that you wanted readers to take away from your book, what would it be? I think if there's a message in this book, the message is the cost of the loss of democracy. The cost in human life, in morals and culture uh, of the defeat of the democratic impulse of civil society, of respect for rights, for laws, for uh, individual life, and the appeal of authoritarian populism, this quick quick uh, fix, a solution to everything, this encouragement of conflict, enmity, um, Domestic, internal social social um, fragmentation did not have a happy ending in the Russian case, and I think this is an important thing for people in Western democracies uh, not to take for granted and to remember as uh, very essential. Professor, I'd like to thank you very much. Uh, you used wonderful conversation. Uh, this is Charles Cotillo, New Books Network. I've been speaking with Professor Laura Engelstein about her new book, Russia in Flames. Thank you again, Professor. Thank you, Charles. Thank you.